You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. You're the reason this podcast is still going. If everyone who listened to this podcast gave just $1 a month, we could both turn this podcast into a full-time job and be certain that we could keep it going throughout the pandemic and keep bringing you more episodes. It would be a win for everyone. If you're not a member and you're able to donate, go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. Members get ad-free episodes, extra episodes about fascinating topics, and hilarious, mostly drunken conversations we've had with other podcasters and guests. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl and sign up today to join the fun. You know I love the Lady Palace. And I'm Jen McManamy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. So today we are so thrilled to welcome Kate the Explorers onto our podcast to talk about everybody's favorite topic right now, bathroom business. Hi, Kate. Bathroom business in the ancient world, Jenny. Hello, ladies. Hello. I'm so excited to be back and talking with you today about all things sexy bathroom business. I think we should have really led with that, like, sexy bathroom business. I've been telling Jenny, like, we need to lead with this is our sexiest season ever. Sexy in the bathroom. Let's walk into the steam room. Woo! <laughs> Join us, will you, in the ladies' room of ancient Greece. <laughs> if you know what I mean. I mean, we're already off the rails and we're about a minute into the episode. <laughs> I really wanted Kate to come on and do this with us because um, last episode we did, which was, I think it might have been like the second or third time we ever had somebody on our podcast, Kate. We didn't have a huge agenda for what we were talking about, but it was just so fun. And you were so excited about the sort of day-to-day details, like how did people go to the bathroom and what underwear does everyone wear, that I was just like, okay, we've got to dig into this more. And this is the perfect time to do that. It's been such a different season for us because like before this season, we focused on like these really big historical like linchpin turning point moments and arcs and this time we were just like we just kind of want to get into the day-to-day life and what the season was supposed to be it did not turn out this way it was supposed to be one or two episodes on sex work and then all these like ancient mystery cults and worship and one of us I'm not gonna say who it was decided to start writing about sex work and we have a weekly season and what should have been one episode turned into four five Five. So then we had to restructure most of the season around it. And it's such a different, rich season that I'm so incredibly proud of. So with all all that in mind, let's talk about what happened in the bathroom, shall we? Okay, so I'm very excited. You know, I love talking about bathroom business. This is like, I've been looking forward to this all week. Okay. So, okay, bathrooms. It's a- So actual bathroom business. Were there bathrooms in the brothels. <laughs> We've had people ask us, like, there's the whole, like, the bum sponge and the public bathrooms in ancient Rome that were just sort of like, men would go there and use a communal sponge to wipe their buttholes. I mean, it was soaked in vinegar. I'm sure it was a great time for their bums. I don't know if I'd want to put vinegar down there. Maybe that's just me. No, I don't know why that was a good idea. I guess maybe it killed germs. <laughs> 
But like people ask us like, well, what did women do when they were out and about and they had to go to the bathroom? Because I'm like, I bet they didn't have a public bathroom like men. So, I, yeah. What do you think? Well, this is a difficult one to answer because we do have a lot of writing about men's business in the bathroom and men going to public bathrooms. But we don't have as much information, explicit information about what women did, probably because much like many time periods, I think that Greek and Roman men were uncomfortable with the idea of women going to the bathroom. Like women don't have to women don't poop, right? We do not. We do not poop. No. Unfortunately, that book lies. Not everybody poops. (laughs) (laughs) That area of the body is only for sex and for, you know, having babies. That's it. That's all. It's just for men and children. <laughs> so we don't have as much explicit information as I would like about what women were doing, but we can we can surmise some things. So I think for most women, a lot about a sex worker's situation would depend on where she was working and kind of what. There was a hierarchy, a status with sex workers, as I'm sure you've already talked about. So you had women who were out in the streets and, you know, doing their business kind of out in public places. And then you had women who were in brothels. A lot of the women who were in brothels, I imagine it just made good business sense for them to have a bathroom in the brothel so that women didn't have to go elsewhere to do their business. You know, they needed to be plying their trade regularly to be able to make money, but they definitely needed a place to clean up, take care of themselves, do their business between clients. And I guess that's what I'm kind of curious about, too. Like, would it have been like a chamber pot situation or? I think it is very likely that we have the chamber pot situation going on. So something that they could just pull out when they needed it. And then someone could take the refuse and dump it out in the street or, you know, wherever they dumped their refuse. That would have been a quick and easy solution. Some brothels were quite small. Sometimes they were just one room. But the larger brothels probably had some kind of built-in latrina situation. So like you said, that's basically just a single seat toilet. It's built into the wall. It has some kind of toilet seat. So it looks a lot like what we would consider a toilet now, but it's not a flushing toilet, probably. It's, it's a cesspit toilet. Or it might have some kind of terracotta drain pipe situation that takes the refuse away to maybe a downstairs location or out into the street. You know, at least in the ancient world, you actually had fairly decent plumbing. So there were options for piping refuse out of the brothel and it probably into the street or into a garden or, you know, away. Because obviously, like, you don't want the brothel smelling like refuse that's not exactly like going to put anyone in an amorous mood. So you needed some way to kind of take it away discreetly. To wipe, it is quite possible that the ladies are using a bum sponge situation. Although I have to say, I think it's unlikely that they're all sharing it for a variety of reasons. One of them being, you would think that given the nature of their work and that they They're trying to keep from getting pregnant. They're trying to keep themselves clean. I mean, they do understand the link between not cleaning up regularly and disease, you know. So I I would think that they would maybe all have their own sponge or they were using some kind of like linen or wool rag. Like they all had their own rag, their own like cleanup kit that they used. (laughs) Maybe they labeled it with their initials. Who knows? It's like sewn in like when you go to camp. Yeah, exactly. Like you have your own personal hanky. Maybe you just use your hands in a pinch and then, you know, wash them off later. You know, it's really it's really hard to know. But we don't actually know. I mean, a lot of this is conjecture, right? Oh, totally. Yeah. A a lot of this is conjecture. We just don't have a lot of, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of surviving writing from women. And when we do, they're not generally talking about how they dealt with their toilet time. So, which is so sad. (laughs) 2,000 years later, what are people going to want to know? How did you go to the bathroom? It's like, that's all I want to know. Why didn't anyone write that down? So because we don't know, I'm just going to imagine it's an amazing bidet and nobody had to touch anything. Uh, Hopefully. I mean, let's just hope they all had their own bum sponges. That's all. Well, I mean, the vinegar (laughs) kills all the germs, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You just, you know, some olive oil, some vinegar, you know, you're good to go. It's all right. I was going to say in terms of the public bathroom situation... On one hand, we have next to no information about that. And on the other hand, specifically for sex workers, we do have some. So in terms of like the public paid toilet situation, we know that men were using them. I have had a really hard time finding out if there were specific public bathrooms for women. I mean, 
again, maybe it's this idea that it's not seemly for women to go to the bathroom in public, but you just think surely there must have been some because women also out and about needed to relieve themselves. So I would imagine that they would have kept these facilities separate for men and women, but they were probably pretty similar. But I don't I don't know. I have not been able to find any references to that at all. But one place that sex workers certainly would have been spending time and doing their business, all their kinds of business, sexy business, toilet business, would have been the public baths. As your listeners know, these are really interesting spaces where you go to mix and mingle, to bathe, to get waxed, to get cleaned, to get massages. And sometimes you went to the baths for a little bit of amorous playtime. So we do have references to sex workers spending time in baths. And that's part of what makes mixed bathing in ancient Rome this hotly contested topic. You know, there were people who thought mixed baths were fine. There were people who thought mixed baths were no good at all. One of the people who thought that mixed baths, like men bathing with women, was very bad was Plutarch, who had the following to say. I thought this was a wonderful quote. He has this to say about it. Men must not be naked together with women. In addition to the indecency, certain effluvia issues from women's bodies and excretions, which are defiling when absorbed by men. So men, make sure not to bathe with any women, no matter how fine. Her effluvia will poison you obviously. And this is why women are barred from public pools for all of time. The poison effluvia. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, if <laughs> if she was wearing a, a bathing suit and not bathing and just swimming, it would have been totally fine. It's because she's naked and she can secrete stuff. <laughs> yes. But we do know that the baths get this reputation for being a place where you can go and pay for some a female companion to spend some time with you. So Especially certain public baths become very uh, connected to actresses and sex workers. So we know that they went to the public baths. They were probably plying their trade at the baths in certain locations. And certainly while they were there, they would have been bathing and doing their business. So it was really like a one-stop shop for the enterprising sex worker. You could get waxed and you could get, you know, all of your beauty treatments. And you could pick up some clients, pick up some work to pay for said beauty treatments. What a great arrangement. Everything in one convenient locale. Yep. That involves bathing. (laughs) I love it. Were there any taboos about sex workers bathing with non-sex workers in the female public baths? It's hard to say. I think so. I mean, from what we know, there were certainly, there was a lot of advice floating around about women of higher status going to the baths and when they should go and what areas they should go into. And I think part of that was about you don't want to be mixing with women of loose morals because, you know, you might become tainted by association kind of thing. I also think some of it is you don't want men to think that you, without your clothes on, that they can do anything to you because the way men treated women who they believed were sex workers was deplorable like in every I mean we've covered it throughout the season so I suspect some of it was also warning women against men who might mistake them for a sex worker oh completely yes completely and I do think that you would have known the difference between a sex worker in the baths and a, a finer lady pretty immediately because she would have had slaves with her she would have had attendants with her basically to protect her from the advances of Basically, to protect her from anyone touching her and anyone making a mistake about her identity. But you do wonder. I mean, that's one of the things I'm fascinated by. It's like, how did you tell the difference? Because when everyone's basically stripped of their clothes, how do you tell who's a sex worker and who's not? Do you just wait for the sex worker to come up to you? I mean, I'm just thinking about the average woman who might not have enslaved people to come and like go to the baths with them because they're their servants were guys or they didn't have any enslaved people because they're just above the poverty line, shall we say. Exactly. I think you would never go as a lady alone to the baths. Even sex workers, I think, were probably going in groups just for safety and protection. But I also think that there were probably specific times and areas in the baths that the manager of the baths would make it pretty clear what was happening where and what was allowed where. And often sex workers might even go with a pimp or some kind of security guard. But we, we don't we don't know exactly. And I bet the sex workers that were wealthier would also have attendance, you know, because there were, you know, wealthier ones, too. Totally. It's so interesting, too. I remember being asked at one point, an interviewer doing with somebody else, I believe, about 
whether women went, you know, like guys can just pee against a wall if they have to go really bad, you know, and like whether women did that when they were out and about, if there were no public bathrooms available. Like my answer was, I don't have any idea, but I would assume not because I would assume that it it would be a safety issue given the culture. Totally. I think she she would she would hold it. I think you would absolutely like if we were transported back to ancient Rome and we were we really had to pee. I would absolutely hold it until I got home or found a private place. Because if you are, you know, lift lifting up those layers and exposing yourself, people might get the wrong idea. Being out in public, you know, especially in ancient Greece, people probably got the wrong idea anyway. Yes. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. What do we know about periods? How women dealt with their periods back then? Yes, let's get into this. Lay it on us. (laughs) Ancient men had a lot to say about women's periods and specifically about period blood. Oh, good. Please. <laughs> Tell me what men think about period blood. <laughs> oh, they think all the things. So like the general the general consensus in ancient Greece, Rome, and even Egypt, I would say, is that period blood is powerful. It has some spiritual connection, but it's also very dangerous. It's magic. Like they absolutely 100% think it's sex magic. Um, but they also think that it's poison, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> Like the effluvia, really. (laughs) It's the most potent form of poisonous effluvia there is. It endangers men especially. So I have a couple of really choice, weird beliefs about period blood. There's Aristotle. So Aristotle believed that if a woman on her period were to look into her mirror, it would cloud over. It distorted the air because her force during that time was so powerful. So I guess the, the thinking here was that you know, when you're on your period, it affects your eyes, which are full of blood vessels. They have the power to distort and disturb the air around her. So it's like she's making this angry female cloud, which I thought was amazing. And then we have Pliny the Elder. Oh, Pliny the Elder. I know, right? <laughs> Pliny the Elder has so much to say about periods. And I have to tell you. And so much of it is wrong. <laughs> I mean, I have to tell you all of it because it, it is the most amazing. So get ready. Get ready for the kind of power we are, the dark power we are about to unleash on the world right now. Bring it. <laughs> yes. So Pliny wrote that if a woman got her period during a solar or lunar eclipse, she could kill a man just by having sex with him. Awesome. Also, he believes, this is one of my favorites, he believes that If a menstruating woman hikes up her skirts and she walks through a field, she has the power to kill all insects and pests in that field. So he actually tells us that this phenomenon was first observed in Cappadocia during a really bad beetle infestation. So he he tells us that a bunch of women on the rag basically hiked their hiked their, you know, skirts up to their butt cheeks, walked through the fields, and all the beetles just dropped dead. That's really cool. I wish that was true. <laughs> I, I want to, I just, I have a question about the eclipse. 
Is it if you had your period at one point in time during an eclipse, then if you had sex with men, you could kill them just because you had your period at that time? Or is it if you had sex with a woman who had their period during the eclipse for that one window of time, if you had sex, you could kill a man? The second. I believe it was only during the eclipse. So if you have your period and it is an eclipse and you have sex with a man, you could kill him with your poisonous effluvia. <laughs> I think it like some it somehow like messes, it like charges, it supercharges your lady palace. Yeah. Your lady palace. That's that's it. <laughs> that's what I'm calling it from now on. <laughs> you know I love the lady palace. If you put your dick in a lady palace during an eclipse, that's it. It will be lost forever at sea. Speaking speaking of the sea, this is maybe my favorite thing that Pliny has to say about a lady on her period. So he believes that if you are a lady on your period, you can actually impact the weather. So if you're having hailstorms or whirlwinds or lightning, and this is especially true if you're out at sea. So if you are out at sea and you are on a boat and, you know, you're being storm tossed all over the place, a woman on her period can take off all of her clothes, stand on the mast, and she can actually calm tempestuous weather. First off, that is epic. <laughs> Who knew that giving the ocean a striptease could actually soothe it? <laughs> I wonder why this was not in our bodies ourselves. Like, we were not taught about the power of the effluvia. I feel a little cheated. I could have been killing men with my vag the whole time. You could have been getting rid of beetle infestations. <laughs> I could be in pest control at this point and making lots of money. You could be an excellent pirate or sea captain. Yeah, I could just calm the waters with my vag. I could have killed my husband many times during an eclipse. It's the power of the Lady Palace, right? I think what the thing to know about all of this is it sounds awesome and amazing to us. Like it sounds like, wow, aren't we powerful to us? But he's re he's really saying that a woman's period is very damaging. And I say a woman's period and not a person who menstruates because he, you know, is talking specifically about he's an ancient man. He's talking about women at the time. But he he's basically saying that it's it's a kind of dark magic that can harm other things. So he goes on to say things like period blood specifically is they're very like a lot of ancient men are very nervous about period blood. He goes to say that if it touches them, it can make bees forsake their hives. It can turn linen black. It can blunt razors and it can contaminate anything purple, any purple cloth it can contaminate. Yeah, especially when you think about some of those early emperors and their incestuous relationships with their sisters and moms. Like, what are you trying to say here exactly, Pliny? I was also wondering about that. I think it's interesting that it's specifically purple. Well, I just wonder if it's got to do particularly with someone like Nero, who, you know, they thought his mother was controlling him, or even Caligula, who his sisters had too much control. I mean, it all goes back to Agrippina the Younger. But, you know, who knows? Who knows what he means, really? But I think the interesting thing here is that, you know, yeah, it sounds empowering and we can laugh about it. But underneath it all, it's it's a way of othering women. Exactly. 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 And I do think some of that is about it's a, it was a power they didn't understand and it was a process they didn't understand that well. And so they found it a bit scary. And I think it's really interesting that they talk about it almost like this. It's a stain and a poison, but it's also really magically potent. I mean, the ancient Egyptians specifically used period blood in a lot of medicine and salves, and they used it in spells as well. But there's we have one um, papyrus scroll that talks about using period blood if a woman has particularly saggy breasts. Apparently, she can smear period blood over her breasts and they'll just perk right up. Oh, really? Wow, that's useful. When the bra fails, we have our solution. So Even Pliny says that um, even though he has a lot of negative things to say about period blood, he does say that if you smear it onto doorposts, that all spells, all magician spells will be neutralized. So while it is potentially poisonous, it also has some some magical benefits. So it's powerful. What did women do on a day-to-day -day basis to manage their periods? So we don't have a lot of evidence from the super long ago past about what people did. These things haven't lasted the test of time, really. But again, we can surmise a bit about what people did to manage their flow. So most people would have been using some kind of homemade pad. That would have been the easiest thing to use. But the thing to say about that is that, you know, a lot of the women of this time period weren't wearing underwear the way we think of underwear most of the time, especially in ancient Egypt, where they were they were wearing a lot of thin white linen. It's like, well, what were they doing? Like, how were they 
if they had a pad, how were they holding it in place? So we think the ancient Egyptians seem to have had some kind of like loincloth situation happening, kind of like a sexy diaper happening. We know this because there's this papyrus scroll. It's describing a list of unpleasant professions for men. And it specifically says that it really sucks to be a laundry man because he has to handle women stained under things. So we do have some evidence to suggest that some women were wearing like the equivalent of leather bikini briefs. <laughs> so they seem to have been made out of goat skin, which I imagine would not be very breathable or very comfortable, but they'd be fairly waterproof, which suggests that they were used either for swimming or for menstruation. It's hard to say if that's what they were used for, but it is possible. There would have to be like a lot of frequent wiping because it's not that absorptive, right? Like it would just kind of be. Well, maybe if you were giving it a regular like wipe out, you know, it's kind of like a leather couch. If you wipe it down, they're easy to clean, right? Like you just wipe them off with vinegar, maybe. Who knows? I imagine this being logistically difficult. <laughs> like, Yeah, I think it's more likely that they were either using some kind of, you know, linen or wool pad kind of just somehow attached or. I think it's incredibly likely that they would have been using some form of tampon that they made at home, especially if you're a working woman. So I think tampons were probably a popular option. Again, it's like it's hard to know because not a lot of people were writing about this. We, we do know that something like a tampon was used to insert medicine into the cervical cavity, and it's perfectly likely that they were also using them to deal with menstruation. There's evidence that they used rolled up pieces of wool that Egyptian ladies might have used ones made out of papyrus. So yeah, we, we most of our references that we get to these are in the realm of medicine, you know, put certain herbs onto this pessary and then, you know, shove it home. <laughs> yeah, but if you think about it, especially for a sex worker or any, you know, woman on the go, it, it makes sense that you would use a tampon, like as long as you were to, and they were reusable. If you're using a linen tampon, it's reusable. So as long as you take it out and you clean it thoroughly and quickly after you've used it, you can use it again. And it's kind of a fast and easy option. So a lot of this is, you know, a lot of this is, again, conjecture, but that's what I think. What else do we know about what women sex workers um, might have been wearing in terms of underwear if they were underwear at all? And was there any kind of form of lingerie? I'm curious about this. Ooh, okay. Well, in terms of underwear, it is unlikely that women were wearing any. Our outfits are generally thick and it's a lot of cloth, so it's not like you need them for modesty. Like you're not going to be able to tell if someone's wearing underwear or not. But if they are wearing them, they're probably made out of linen or wool. We do have images of people wearing things that look like modern underwear, like the bikini girls mosaic. I mean, that is very much in reference to women who are working out. So like the Bikini Girls mosaic, for anyone who hasn't seen it, it essentially looks like there are these women who are, I think one's holding a discus. They're clearly exercising and they're wearing what look like, you know, bikini bottoms and like a bandeau top, you know, like a strapless bra situation. So we don't know how often people were wearing underwear. I mean, if you think about a pala, in ancient Greece and ancient Rome, women are wearing essentially not a toga, but like a... A pala. They're wearing cloth, pieces of cloth that are very long and very heavy and go usually all the way down to their ankles. So to go to the bathroom in that outfit when you're, you have all this heavy cloth on, it really just makes sense not to wear any underwear if you can get away with it, right? It's probably more comfortable. You don't need it for modesty. So I think it's unlike, especially for sex workers who are going to need to peel on and off their underwear with frequency. I think it is incredibly unlikely that they're wearing any unless perhaps they have their period or they have some need to keep a pad up there or to have some medicine up there and then they might. Mm -hmm. Before we move on from the topic of underwear, um, bras and keeping the lady orbs under control. Keeping the lady orbs in orbit. Right. So you mentioned the, the bikini girls. Like, yeah. So if I remember right, it's um, women with these sort of like leather looking strips of cloth over the breast that are just like strapless, just basic strips of cloth. Is that like a bra situation that women would have had all the time? So when it comes to bras, the evidence leaves us scratching our heads a little bit about who was wearing bras and who wasn't. We know that we know that people were wearing bras in ancient Greece and ancient Rome, and it was very much just a strip of cloth, a long strip of cloth that would have been wound around, depending on the effect you wanted the bra to have. So 
You might want to squash down your lady orbs a little bit, keep them strapped in, make them look a little smaller, or you could wrap them in such a way that they would give you a little bit of cleavage or, you know, plump them up a little bit. So these bras, we find them in ancient Greece and ancient Rome. They're called a strophium or a strophion, and they're, they're pretty versatile, as I said. They had the potential to pad them. Our friend Ovid he seems very keen to give ladies advice about their lady orbs. He tells us that if the bra- <laughs> he tells us that if the breasts aren't quite the right shape, that you can stuff your bras to make to make your orbs look larger. So thanks thanks for that hot tip, Ovid. Wow, Ovid, thank you for informing me of that. <laughs> Just think I would never have thought about it. <laughs> thank you for mansplaining stuffing for me. <laughs> I've been doing that since I was twelve. Oops, should I have said that? <laughs> <laughs> he's the king. He's the king of the mansplain for sure. Um, But in terms of who was wearing them, it sort of becomes interesting when we talk about sex workers versus your Matrona walking around. So it does seem that there is some connection between bra wearing or lack thereof in sex work. It seems like respectable women would keep their bra on all the time, even during sex. So like that's never coming off. It might be for modesty. It could be that it's not that easy to get off, like there's no easy eye hook undo situation in this era. By contrast, we have sources that that suggest that sex workers, they could suddenly flash a passersby and show her breasts rather easily, which implies that she's not wearing a bra. But that said, we do have some mosaics from places like Pompeii that show sex workers plying their trade while wearing a bra. And then we have some mosaics that were found in bedrooms where the woman pictured is not wearing a bra. So it's a little bit hard to know who's wearing it and why. And like, is there some divide between bras are respectable and not wearing bras aren't? But I would imagine that especially for a sex worker, not wearing a bra, again, would just be more convenient. Perhaps it just depends what her specialties were and what she was offering. Maybe she was, maybe she wasn't. We know they were floating around, but it's really hard to to know for sure who was wearing them when. But also, like, I imagine, as you said, they could wear them in different ways to get different effects. So, you know, if your boobs were a little too big, maybe you were wearing them to push them down, give yourself more cleavage, make yourself look more like that ideal. And if you didn't have a lot there, maybe you were pushing things up, adding things in. And if you had perfect boobs and you were just flashing them, because like I would, why wouldn't you? Yes. I mean, I do think that the, the typical like sexy silhouette was fairly small breasts and then wide childbearing hips. That was like the silhouette that was considered the sexiest. But I can only imagine like we have references to breasts. We have lots of statues with women bearing breasts. We have mosaics of women showing their their boobs. And we have that story, which I know you, you will have talked about, about Phryne flashing her perfect alabaster orbs. The perfect Aphrodite adjacent lady orbs. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, it's just really hard to know. Like, it seems to me like the bras that they were wearing would not have been very revealing. They're just strips of cloth. But who knows? I mean, maybe they bedazzled them. Like, maybe they did the ancient equivalent of bedazzling their bras. Maybe they had bras in different colors. It's really hard to say. Mostly the clothes that they were wearing were not showing. Like, they were not revealing up top at all. Like, the breasts were very much covered. So I don't think that there was a lot of reason to want to create cleavage. But that said, if you are a sex worker and you were probably wearing um, your outfit, your hemline is probably a lot shorter than, say, a Matrona's. And that's part of your way of signaling, hey, like, I'm open for business. Like, you can tell just by looking at their outfit. So maybe they were also a little scantier on top. So maybe bras were used to, like, bring the lady orbs up for a little bit of a, a cheeky show. I don't know. It's yeah, it's it's all really murky. It's really hard to say. And like, as you know, a lot of our sources come from men who are like making jokes and making judgments. So it's it's hard, especially with sex workers, because there's such a stigma. Absolutely. I remember reading somewhere that women who were sex workers in ancient Rome specifically wore red togas as sort of a, a way for people to tell that they were sex workers. Um, I don't know if you've seen that, Kate. I have seen that. And I've also seen a reference to women who would dye their hair blue or wear blue wigs as a way of signaling that they were sex workers. But I've seen these things pop up here and there, but I haven't seen a lot of kind of corroborating evidence for them. So again, I think it's it's hard to know for sure, but it does make sense that these women would have wanted a way to signal who they were and what they were about. I have read that, um, I believe it was in ancient Greece, that 
there were some sex workers who had sandals that had words imprinted on the underside. Follow me. Yeah. Follow me. Yes. So which is amazing. But also I have read that in ancient Greece, there were essentially platforms like cork platform shoes, which were often used in the theater to raise, you know, an actor up and show them to the audience and kind of show their importance. But I have there's some suggestion that sex workers would sometimes use shoes like this to raise them over the crowd a bit, to give them visibility, and just to mark them as different from the other women walking the street. So yeah, they would have wanted visual signifiers because they they didn't want to have to go up. Like they didn't, you know, they probably didn't have little business cards that they were like handing out to potential clients. They needed a way to just visually signify who they were. So I think one of the interesting things that we talked about in our episode about the shoes is the ones that say, follow me, or even the ones that are just cork shoes that are slightly different. There are ways for a lot of sex workers and a lot of women and men in these positions to leave a trail in case something happened to them because these were high-risk professions. So in addition to making you stand out, it also means that other people can find you if anything goes wrong. Right, and this is conjecture too. Like we don't know that they were actually using it for that, but it's a thought. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. This was a very, very vulnerable position for most sex workers. I mean, we do have some higher status, I should say, sex workers who essentially were essentially courtesans. So they probably would have, they wouldn't have been plying their trade in the street or a brothel and they would have been much better protected. But for women and men who were plying their trade in the streets, they had to be very, very careful because as you say, the way that they were treated was often appalling. A lot of these people were enslaved as well. So they really weren't given a lot of respect or protection. So yeah, they had to find every way they could to keep themselves safe for sure. Mm-hmm. Makeup is, is another way they could visually signify. And I remember reading in somebody's writing in the ancient world, I forget who now, but, you know, descriptions of um, sex workers wearing very thick makeup. And of course, this was not a flattering description. But what kind of makeup could we conjecture they might have been using? Well, as is true in a lot of time periods of history, there was this idea that makeup was good. You know, makeup could make you look more attractive, but you had to make sure not to use too much of it, because if you use too much of it, it made you look like you were a sex worker. So from that, we can derive that, yes, sex workers were probably wearing a lot more makeup than the higher class lady, but all women were, I mean, maybe not working women outside of sex workers, but most women, at least in ancient Rome, for sure, were using makeup. And A lot of the makeup they were using was about having smooth, unblemished skin. So having nice skin was a sign of good health, of good living. It was considered very sexy because you had so many diseases that could impact your skin that they didn't really have good treatments for. So that smooth, polished look was important, and you could achieve that by using certain foundations and facial washes. Some of these were totally, I mean, I would use them today. So they had ingredients like olive oil, almond oil, honey, fruit juice, poppy seeds, rose water. Usually these were mixed with some kind of fat, either plant or animal fat. But there are also some foundations and some facial treatments that were a little bit more adventurous. And they had things like cow placenta. That's supposed to be great for curing skin ulcers. Bull bile. It can stain the face a very pleasing hue if anyone wants to slather some bowl bile onto their face. What's bowl bile? Um, I mean, I'm assuming bowl bile comes from a bull's stomach. Like, is it stomach acid? Oh, bull bile. Oh, like bile from a bull's stomach. I was not making that connection. I just want to know what color it's going gonna, it's gonna to stain my face before I uh, apply it. Right. I don't... Yeah, I, I am... I imagine maybe it would have been a blush because you wouldn't have been wanting to darken your skin because pale skin was the very coveted thing for ancient Greek and ancient Roman women. You wanted your skin to look flawless. You wanted it generally to look pale. Not that everyone was pale, but I think the idea was, you know, the paler you are, the more you look like you don't have to work for a living. That had to do more with status. We also don't want wrinkles. We definitely don't want to look old. So for your wrinkles, you can treat them with things like swan's fat, ass's milk, Axle grease, very good for wrinkles. Axle grease. Yes, yes, yes. And for freckles, there's the ash of snails. I've been doing that wrong. I need to get me some ash of snails because I have a lot of freckles. (laughs) 
Wow. I do have some like Korean snail cream that works wonders for my skin. It is awesome. <laughs> I love my snail cream. You'll pry my snail cream out of my cold, dead hands. <laughs> <laughs> So in terms of more, you know, like face whiteners and things we've been putting on our faces, creams, we have ingredients like narcissus bulb and cantaloupe root. I'm not totally sure what that is. And cumin. So that would have smelled nice at least. But then we also have found facial creams that contain things like lead or tin oxide. And then in ancient Egypt, although it was used all, it was coveted throughout the ancient world, there was crocodile dung. Crocodile dung. So Galen says that it is very highly prized, and Pliny the Elder assures us that if our crocodile dung comes from crocodiles who live only on sweet-smelling flowers, that it won't be gross. It'll actually smell quite pleasant. Spoken like a man who has never put feces on his face is all I have to say about that. Not just feces, a feces of a carnivore. Like carnivore and omnivore and also um, herbivore feces all smell very different. And a crocodile is an animal that lives on like a lot of meat. That's a stinky feces. Yeah, it feels like not not a great idea. I'm not sure I'm going to be trying that one. The crocodile dung would be like a whitening agent. Is that the situation? Well, yes. I think that was one of the ingredients you'd, you'd put in to make your skin paler. I'm not really sure how that worked particularly, but I also think you, it just went into all sorts of face creams. They were certainly using some things in their beauty products, which we'll talk about in a little bit, which the modern day lady would probably not be super stoked to use. But some of them sound okay. I mean, especially in ancient Greece and Rome, you're using a lot of olive oil and vegetable fat, which, you know, as a facial treatment is perfectly lovely. So in terms of if your skin, if you have some imperfections, if you have some pockmarks, I've found some evidence they use little patches called splenia or alute alute that's i'm going with that so they're like teeny leather scraps and they're sometimes treated with alum and then they're pasted directly onto the skin so it's kind of like an artful little beauty mark so you see these later in history too you could cut them into shapes and stuff and put them on your face interesting like a fake beauty mark covering up an actual imperfection yes exactly as i said we're using a decent amount of makeup and sex workers are probably going to use um, a decent amount So one of the things we're doing is we're tinting our eyelashes with ash to make them look fuller. So that's pretty easy to come by. So one thing that Pliny, our friend Pliny, uh, writes about this is that (laughs) he says that our eyelashes fall off if we are someone who is too much given to venereal pleasures. We need to know this if we're a sex worker because, you know, if our eyelashes have fallen off, it might hurt business. So we want to make sure that we we have they're, they're bushy and full. And if not, draw some on who knows <laughs> right no that's very important to know is this hazard of the job losing your eyelashes oh plenty oh boy so we're going to um enhance our eyes so we're going to use coal like the ancient egyptians use it's a mix of some oil or fat and a pigment so some kind of like ground up uh, i think it's called galen is what the ancient egyptians use and coal so you, you basically just grind it up and you mix it with some fat binding agent and then you brush it on so some of the ingredients that we use for this are squid ink antimony something called lamp black essentially ashes <laughs> uh, and sometimes they're mixed with things like saffron to try to mitigate the smell make it smell a little nicer then we'll have eyeshadow. So this could contain all sorts of tinting agents. So it might contain some charred ground rose petals, roasted date stones, or a paste made out of toasted ants. What color are the toasted ants? I don't I'm assuming like a dark red, brownish. I mean, maybe just gave you like a good smoky eye, literally. I wonder if they were really good at blending. Smoked ants, yeah. What kind of colors did they have available for eyeshadows? Do we know anything about that? Um, I think a lot of them would have been in the red-brown spectrum because those were the easiest to come by. Like, you don't have a lot of blue. I know the ancient Egyptians, especially in sort of the early dynasties, used green eyeliner, which is really cool. I think it's malachite. I can't remember that they ground. Anyway, it was a green stone that they ground up and, again, mixed with fat of some kind or oil. And so, you know, that was probably known in ancient Greece and Rome. But, you know, if you're going to wear a green eyeliner, like, that's pretty aggressive. So you're probably... So maybe, like, sex workers might have gotten a little bit adventurous with their eyeliner, and it probably would have put it on in different colors and a little thicker. I don't think they had a lot of blue, 
because blue is a little bit harder to come by. I also think they wouldn't have had purple, very difficult tint to achieve, um, and also probably not a color that your common sex worker would have wanted to mess with. So yeah, I think like some some colors are much easier to come by than others, like, you know, ground henna, and I feel like all the browns and golds are probably going to be popular. Um, and then we'll definitely have some rouge. We want to give our cheeks that healthy glow. We want to, you know, look healthful. And that means brushing on some rouge. So yeah, I don't know. Like some of these are made out of red ochre, rose, poppy petals, red chalk. We probably would have been using a lot of chalk. What we were actually using in terms of makeup would have depended what kind of money we had and, you know, what we had had access to. So I imagine, especially for sex workers, they would have been grabbing things that were close to hand and a little bit cheaper. So something like different kinds of chalk, mix up with some goose fat and brush on. I've got a question about protection of your skin. So obviously, you know, you wanted to look younger and you wanted to keep everything looking good. Did they have any kind of sunblock or cream to help you mitigate the effects of the sun? Yes, I have read references to some kind of sun protection, sun cream. I don't remember what they put in it, and I'm not sure how well it would have worked. I think for a lot of women, they would have been wearing some kind of head covering or veil and just trying to stay out of the sun generally. Yeah, that's probably your big your your big sunblock is a literal kind of cloth that blocks the sun. Yes, but yeah, I don't I don't have a really good answer to that question, but I I'm very very sure that they had many concoctions to try to keep them from getting freckles and from getting too tan. Hello everyone, Stakuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about the Lady Jungles. Um, grooming tactics. Uh, how did women manage their pubic hair? Um, specifically for sex workers, but I'm interested in this just as a general question as well. Well, we know that both in ancient Greece and ancient Rome that everything underneath our eyebrows, pretty much, we want to keep to a minimum. So, well, ancient Egypt is famous for this, but also in Rome and Greece, we're taking off a lot of our body hair. We are shaving, we are plucking, we are ripping it out with a resin paste, or we're scraping it off with a pumice stone. Oh, geez. Yeah, can you imagine? <laughs> yeah, so... Definitely, we're we're not we're not wanting a lot of body hair, and that is going to include the lady jungle area. We have lots of examples of ancient tweezers, like ancient Egypt tweezers turn up a lot, um, and we know that both men and women were doing this. There's this wonderful little anecdote from Suetonius who tells us that Augustus uh, was known to depilate his leg hairs by rubbing them with scalding hot walnut shells. Doesn't that sound delightful? You got to keep the legs looking smooth, Augustus. Otherwise, I don't know what you're doing under that toga, babe. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I really hope this is true because I just love the image of him, like, having himself scalded with walnut shells just to keep those legs looking smooth. You might flash the Senate with, that you packed with, with your hairy legs. <laughs> Ooh, let him get a little, little look at that ankle. Little calf action in there. <laughs> that calf had better be smooth as a baby's bottom. Damn straight. <laughs> uh, so, right. Okay, so pubic hair. So we know we're removing a lot of hair from, like, the neck down. But in terms of pubic hair, I mean, all you have to do is look at a statue of a goddess uh, to know that 
It seems like the ideal was to have very little pubic hair. This might just be a male artist's fantasy. Uh, who knows? But we do know in ancient Rome that how much hair you had in your downstairs floor becomes a symbol of status. So the less pubic hair you have, it seems, the fancier and higher class you're considered. And given how frequently we are going to public baths, I'm guessing that this was like a subject of debate and gossip and discussion. Oh, you've fallen on hard times. Look at that, Lady Jungle. Clearly somebody's (laughs) not pruning down there. Hmm. Right. So exactly, exactly why this was, I'm not sure, but it does seem like the ideal to be striving for was to have minimal hair down there. So it stands to reason that at least some sex workers might have shaved their pubic jungle because they wanted to appear a little bit higher class. Especially if we're talking about courtesans, hetera, high-class ladies of the evening who were like companions as opposed to streetwalkers, they probably would have been plucking and shaving. Some might not have, just as a point of like a point of exotic comparison. We do have some graffiti from Pompeii that suggests that at least this one writer advocates for a bushy below-stairs carpet. It's a really rude quote, so I'm going to like clean it up a little bit as I read it. <laughs> I think it's worth sharing. There's no need to. I mean, we get pretty, we get pretty graphic on here. <laughs> All right. Well, you're going to get a first from me. I'm, I'm... Okay, listeners, this is your warning. It's a very rude quote. <laughs> this is the first time I've ever said this word. Uh, on air. So this will be fun. Okay, so here it is. It is much better to fuck a hairy cunt than a smooth one. It both retains the warmth and stimulates the organ. Wow. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I'm sure that there are sex workers who are shaving and there are those who are just just letting it do its going all natural. But I also think that sex workers might have been getting rid of at least some of their hair because of worries about pubic lice. Was this a big problem? I mean, it was probably... A little bit of a problem, I would imagine. I, I also think sex workers would have been very fastidious. Most, you know, they would have tried to be very fastidious about keeping clean, keeping things um, trim. So I think that some of them probably would have just wanted to get rid of the hair just because it was just a little easier to keep things clean that way. So pubic lice would have been a thing. I think they would have been a thing for all ladies. Um, and the key was it's not so much about like pubic hair is dirty in any way or it's hard to keep clean. It's just a matter of washing regularly. So <laughs> it's um, I think there would have been a mix. Uh, there would have been a mix of both, but certainly shaving, plucking, like we were doing a lot of waxing in the ancient world of many parts of our body. It sounds like probably as a sex worker, it's just more practical to remove most, if not all, of the pubic hair. And also there would have been a cultural thing, which like if you wanted to look, I don't know, higher class. And I imagine, you know, sex workers who were not hetere would probably want to look and seem like hetere so they could make more money. Probably a lot of them were shaving or, you know, plucking or removing the hair in whatever way would be my conjecture. I think it probably also depends on the time period. Like presumably there were times wherein less hair was more popular. As we see it from the graffiti, more hair might have been in for a brief minute. Or that could have been just one person's opinion. Yeah, that's what I think. And, you know, this is conjecture. But I think because there's there seems to be this link between your pubic carpet and like whether you have one or not and class that there probably would have been a lot of sex workers who were getting rid of some or all of it. Yeah, but I think it's probably more like modern times. And also, I imagine for poor enslaved sex workers, a lot of things would be about, well, where have the newest like fashionable sex workers come from and what do they look like and what do they do and what's the new fad, you know, which is awful, but I'm sure that's part of it. Yeah, I think if you were an enslaved sex worker, you probably didn't have a lot of choice as to what happened with your pubic hair. Absolutely. I think the the pimp running the brothel would have had final say. Yeah. So what do we know about contraception? Okay, so what do we know about contraception? This is another one of those areas that are a little bit murky. Most of what we know comes from ancient writers like Pliny and Sorinus and, you know, Hippocrates, who definitely have suggestions about contraceptions. A lot of contraceptives probably would have been passed down from mother to daughter, would have been passed around the brothel. You know, the women would have talked about what seems to be working well, what doesn't seem to be working well. Most of our contraception would have involved herbs and pessaries. As we talked about earlier, we were probably 
using things that look like tampons to like get medicine up into the cervical area. And then we would have been doing a lot of rinsing with different concoctions. Sorinus says that we should smear ourselves either before or after sex with things like old olive oil, honey, cedar, pine bark, sumac, wine, and white lead. I'd maybe leave out the white lead if you're trying, you're going to try this at home. That seems legit. Right, right. <laughs> We're not advocating for any of this, really. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Let's Yeah, let's say anything I've mentioned, probably don't try. Hippocrates, I, I thought this was bizarre and interesting. Hippocrates says that if you make a thick mixture of beans and water and you drink that, that you won't become pregnant for up to a year. I'm not sure what kind of beans he was using, but this seems like it's not going to do the job you want it to do. So it seems like we're doing a lot of olive oil and honey and cedar resin washes and mixes. Um, And one of Homer's plays, a character suggests using pennyroyal, which is a wild plant that would have been, you know, fairly easy to come by. Although if I'm remembering correctly, because I think pennyroyal has been used as both contraception and a means of aborting a pregnancy throughout many eras. And it's pretty poisonous, I think. I think pennyroyal is not great for you. Um, And I guess that's the idea is that it's going to purge things. I don't know. So I, again, would not suggest you use that one at home. That's kind of what I have to say about contraception. I think that obviously this was a major concern for sex workers. They did not want to get pregnant, especially for women working in a brothel. If you were to become pregnant, you might lose your job, get kicked out. Obviously, if you're enslaved, it just is is what it is. Um, It's going to create a potentially dangerous situation for you. So they would have been working hard to try to not get pregnant. So that's another reason why I think there would have been specific areas in most of these brothels that was kind of functioned as a bathroom in that it was a place they could go and have all their oils and herbs and washes and douches. I think there would have been just like a lot of douching, a lot of rinsing, because they knew if they could, you know, get the seed out of them quickly, they had less chance of conceiving. We do know that abortion, like the ancient writers do talk about abortion. Most of them say we shouldn't be doing it. But also there was this idea that if you were to abort a pregnancy fairly early on, there wasn't the stigma that there was like late stage abortion was there was a definite stigma around that. Like once you got to a certain point, you were, you know, it was frowned upon. But if you did it quite early on, It was sort of a a different thing in their minds. Like, it doesn't seem to have been illegal. The Hippocratic Oath does say that a medical man shouldn't give a lady a potion specifically to get rid of her pregnancy, but it doesn't seem like abortion was illegal. One Hippocratic text called The Nature of the Child suggests that a woman wanting to end a pregnancy should jump up and down and click her heels to her butt several times, and that should do the trick. Jumping and vigorous shaking seems like that seems to be the main the main pieces of advice. So soreness breaks it down into two different steps. So he says if you want to get rid of a pregnancy first, you have to soften the lady palace with some vaginal suppositories. You got to get everything nice and relaxed. And then you need to find a way to give yourself a vigorous shaking. He specifically shouts out the benefits of a shake by means of draft animal. So, like, strap yourself to a draft animal and get them running around. (laughs) Strap yourself to a draft animal. Oh, my gosh. Well, number one, that sounds very dangerous. It's like bull riding. Like, I bet that would do it. Go ride a bull. It's dangerous advice, but not unsound completely. Like, give yourself a vigorous shaking. Yeah, okay, that might work. They don't mean like just, you know, shake around a little bit. They mean like a real vigorous shaking, which just tells me like how desperate these women would have had to be. And of course, we are 100% pro-choice. It is the woman's choice. (laughs) I feel like I've read somewhere and I have not corroborated this. It's just kind of a thing that's in my memory. So I may be misremembering it. And I kind of want to look it up now and do something deeper on it. But I remember seeing some kind of write-up or article about an archaeological site at one point where underneath a brothel discovered either in ancient Greece or ancient Rome, but I think it was in ancient Rome, there was like a, a sewer area and it was full of baby skeletons. Ooh. So the conjecture was that this was the method of, you know, abortion was not in fact abortion, but it was abandoning the baby in the sewer. 
And I mean, it's incredibly sad, but you have to think that a lot of the women working in brothels were enslaved and probably didn't have any control over what happened to that baby when that baby was born. You know, the the pimp might have said, well, that baby is just another mouth to feed and is going to keep you from doing your duty. So out it goes. It's a very sad reality. And I imagine a scary reality that all sex workers had to face. You know, what happens to me if I get pregnant? What happens to my baby? So they were definitely trying to catch it as early as they could. And Absolutely. And I think that, you know, obviously enslaved women in this situation would have absolutely no control. But even if a woman or, you know, a sex worker wasn't enslaved, they probably had very few choices because realistically, a lot of these abortion methods would not have worked that well or they would have been physically dangerous. Yeah, that's what you have to think is that I can't imagine a lot of these worked um, or they worked some of the time, but they weren't were far from foolproof. Like, I don't think they had condoms, as we would think of them. We don't really have any evidence of that. Like, it just would have been so hit and miss. They might have resorted to pretty desperate and dangerous measures like Pennyroyal and Belladonna and who knows what else they were putting in their bodies. The thought being, because, you know, you're working on the medical belief, purging is a good way to, like, rebalance the humors and to, to get rid of things you don't want. So I imagine there would have been a lot of really dangerous poison drinking to try to abort a pregnancy. So yeah, I mean, and that's true in the ancient world. That's true throughout history. There are a lot of folk remedies for conception and to end a pregnancy that are passed from woman to woman, and sometimes they kill women. I mean, and that's absolutely true in a lot of places in the modern world as well, and it's really it's really heartbreaking and horrible. Yeah, I, I don't know. I imagine there are lots of plants and, you know, herbal remedies that we just don't have written down. I imagine the most reliable would have been passed word of mouth from woman to woman, like, this this one really works. Make sure you use this one in this specific way. So we might never know all of the ingredients that they were using, but they, they certainly would have had what they considered their tried and true methods, and they would have made sure to have them on hand. Absolutely. Like, I think it, sex workers would have had to have, like, a contraception kit options in mind for abortion because these had to have been huge. Getting pregnant would be, like, a huge hazard of the job. I don't know how any of them kept from being pregnant all the time. Like, it just seems like it would have been so difficult to stay. But also, I I wonder if they had at least some understanding of the more fertile windows of their cycles. I mean, it does seem like the ancients misunderstood a lot about the best times to conceive. But I do wonder if they had some idea of, well, there are going to be times where I have to be more careful than other times. It's so it's just so hard for us to know. It's so, so it's such shadowy history. Well, and also you're allowing for a lot of choice that they wouldn't have had. Like if you were an enslaved sex worker, you did not get to say, hey, I'm really fertile, like for these five days. Can I just not? Yeah. Can I just can I just take a break and just not? Yeah, that probably wouldn't have gone over very well. Do we know anything about masturbation and dildos and and self-pleasure in this world? Yeah, I mean, I have to say that and this is something that I didn't mention before um, that I think is worth saying about periods and sex is that there were certainly a lot of beliefs at the time about like how women should bleed. You know, bleeding was important because women were soft and fleshy. And if they didn't bleed, then they would fill up with fluids. But also having sex was something that women needed to do now and then or else the poisonous effluvia could build up and become um poisonous to the woman herself. You had to service your woman regularly or else she would become dangerously hysterical. I mean, we see this going into like the Victorian era and stuff like that. I know. And we do, you know, we know that they believed like they knew that women could take pleasure in sex and that in order to conceive a child, pleasure was important. So it stands to reason that certainly masturbation would have been happening. Like I don't, you know, most of these Medical men, ancient medical men, say that women should be having sex only with their husbands, um, and that should kind of take care of business for them. But given what we know about sex and sexuality in the ancient world, I mean, of, of course, women were taking care of their own needs. Those husbands were away a lot. Yeah, I'm, I was just thinking the same thing. Lots of husbands are like off fighting a war somewhere. Like, what are you going to do? Yeah, and, you know... Ancient Spartan women, like, often didn't live with their men. Their men spent a lot of time in barracks. So they were kind of, you know, they, their needs were not getting met on the regular, is all I'm saying. Possibly. 
like I couldn't find a lot specifically about sex toys. We know they certainly existed. The ancient Greeks, there's some evidence that they use something. I wish I could pronounce it. I sure can't. It's like a lot of consonants together. Allis bacolics, maybe? <laughs> Let's go with that. We, we do a lot of guessing in terms of pronunciation on here, so it's okay. Allis bacolics is, is how it is phonetically spelled. And it's essentially a dildo made entirely out of bread. Oh, that does not seem like a good idea to put. No. Presumably they must have had some kind of lubricant. So if you're putting a loaf of bread with some potentially some kind of lubricant on it into your lady palace, I think you're going to have crumbs and mice. Ew. <laughs> I see some ways this could go wrong. <laughs> yeah, who knows? But yeah, so there were there were dildos. And given how many like big phallic symbols were hanging all over the streets of Rome, I do wonder if some of them were made for that specific purpose, but I don't know. I mean, how big of a leap is it? There's like phalluses everywhere and you happen to have an itch that you need scratching. It's like there is this phallus hanging over the door. I mean, if it is hanging over a door, it might be a big leap. That's all I'm going to say. Right. I'm just... (laughs) (laughs) This is a little bit tangential. It goes back to something you said earlier about women needing to have sexual pleasure to conceive. I remember reading somewhere, and this is just me showering things that I remember reading somewhere into this episode, so feel free to correct me. But um, I remember reading somewhere that um, there was a belief in ancient Rome specifically that women had to have an orgasm to get pregnant. Like they would not conceive if they weren't orgasming. Yes, there there are definitely some some writers who talk about that and say that like when a man and a woman have sex that he releases his seeds and the woman also releases a seed and the seeds mix and that's how she's able to get pregnant but in order for her to release have a release of her seed she needs to have an orgasm so there's incentive for women to enjoy sex with their husbands, which is great. It makes me a little happy because all of the sex news coming out of this world is so grim a lot of the time that it's like, well, this is nice to hear that men felt felt an incentive to give their partner an orgasm, to give their female partner an orgasm, theoretically. Well, the men writing about it felt that way. The actual men living in that time. Right. Theoretically. Theoretically. <laughs> But yeah, I I can only imagine that absolutely masturbating is happening with a dildo. Without a dildo, we might just be keeping it simple. Just a little bit of olive oil in your hands and it's all you need. (laughs) I mean, they use olive oil for everything. They just put it on everything. Is there anything olive oil can't do? I ask you. One day it's going to take over the world. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. It was my absolute pleasure. These are areas that I love talking about um, because I think they reveal so much of the lives of women in the past. It really helps us to, it helps connect us to them in this, in this really tangible way. And it also helps us to just understand them as people more. So I, it was my absolute pleasure to be able to come on the show and talk about all things sexy bathroom business. And where can people find you? Well, you can find me wherever you listen to podcasts at The Explores. You can find me at my website, theexplorespodcast.com. You can find me on Instagram. That's my main social media game at The Explores Podcast and on Twitter at The Explores Pod and on Facebook as well. Before we go, Kate, you also are, are an author. Can people follow you anywhere in particular to hear updates about your upcoming book and stuff? Well, yes, um, I I do. I write fiction when I'm not writing about ladies in history. I'm writing history-inspired stories about ladies doing things. And if you want to find out more about that, you can go to my website, katejarmstrong.com, or you can go to my Instagram handle that's specifically all about my fiction writing adventures, which is at katejarmstrongauthor. I think that's right. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on. And yes, we should not leave it so long next time. (laughs) See you guys next week. Bye.